Well, good morning, family. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are visiting with us this morning and I look around, I see a number of you are. We've been going through this little letter from the Apostle Peter to some uh, believers who were in what we today would call Turkey or Asia Minor. Folks who were scattered, who were on the run because of being persecuted for their faith or others who were simply alienated and outcasts even perhaps in their own hometowns all because they are followers of Jesus Christ. Life is tough and life is about to get tougher in the a few years after this, Emperor Nero will unleash upon the church the first great persecution of the church. And as Peter writes to these believers, he's writing to encourage them, writing to help them know how to thrive in a world that is hostile. As we come to the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time, grateful that we have your word to open where we can hear from you. And I pray that this morning, indeed, we would meet you here and be listening to your voice as you speak through your word. And may it make an impact upon our hearts and our minds. May it bring about change in us that Jesus might be glorified through us. So we commit ourselves this morning to you. We ask your grace upon us, for we are a needy people. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. This week I googled the phrase, change your thinking. I did that because I had chosen that for the title of this message this morning. Instantly I discovered that there are a myriad of books out there that are titled Change Your Thinking. There's all kinds of things. People are saying, if you want to have, uh, you know, if you want to be less stressed, if you want to be less depressed, if you want to be, uh, you know, to have a better mood, change your thinking. Others were saying, if you want to be a better organized person, if you want to be more efficient, you need to change your thinking. Some said, if you want to be more successful, Change your thinking. There's a book, if you want to be a better golfer, a better tennis player, change your thinking. If you want to lose weight, change your thinking. I looked to try to see if I could find the title, if you want to be a better thinker, change your thinking. I couldn't find that, but I'm sure it's either out there somewhere or else there is a niche market for you to write another book. It really shouldn't surprise us that A major key to making good changes in our lives is changing our thinking. Because as the Word of God says in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 7, it says that for as a man thinks within himself or thinks in his heart, so he is. In other words, the way that we think determines who we are. Jesus said it this way, Luke chapter 6 Verse 45, he said, the good person out of the the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we store up, what we fill in our heart, in our thinking, in our mind, it eventually works its way out and shows up in our behavior and in our speech. As I said, this letter is about surviving and thriving in a world that is difficult and even hostile. And in the passage before us today, here in chapter 4, the Apostle Peter tells us that if we are going to thrive in a difficult and hostile world, we need to change our thinking. He confronts us with a new understanding or a new look at life in what would have been what was the buzzword a few years ago a new paradigm for life and then out of that what flows out of that are he will also give us three mindsets and those will we will see have profound and practical implications for our daily living Verse 1, chapter 4, 1 Peter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I told you he was going to call us to have a change of the way we think. We ask, what way of thinking does he talk about? Well, he says, he talks about Christ's suffering. And he begins with that little word, since. What that does is it sends us back to what he has said before, what he's been talking about. And so we'll go back, and we're at verse 1 of chapter 4, so it takes us back to chapter 3. If we go, and and by the way, you know, I think most of you do, but just in case you don't, when the Bible has these chapter markings, it's not like when you go down to the the store and you buy a, a novel, we go to most places you pick up a book, the chapter markings were put there were by the author. The chapter markings in our Bible were not there by the author. They were there by the translators centuries after the text was written. And sometimes the, these chapter breaks happen in very awkward places. I think this is one of those. And so we have to ignore that little chapter break. And he says, since Christ also suffered, we, we have to go back and find out what was he talking about. It takes us back up to chapter 3, verse 18, and let me put that verse up there. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous one, the sinless one, for us in our place, the sinful one. He did that, bearing God's judgment on the cross to make a way for us to God. Jesus came to earth on a mission. He was sent here to save us from sin's power and from sin's penalty. We know that in a verse probably most of you are familiar with, well acquainted with, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. By the way, if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Scripture urges you and calls you to do that. I urge you to do that. 
It is the only hope we have for being saved from sin, rescued from hell, and have a future in heaven. It's only by trusting Christ, not by our works. There is no other way. Jesus suffered in the flesh, but that's not the end of the story. Again, he told us that here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to skip past, we were there last week, we skipped past those difficult illustrations that we talked about that Peter used last week and get to the last verse of chapter 3, it's verse 22, and it says, who, Jesus, that is, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus indeed suffered. He suffered and died on the cross of Calvary. But Jesus did not suffer as a victim. As we read there in John 3.16, He was sent by God on a mission. It was the plan of God for the purpose of our salvation, which God accomplished through the cross of Christ and through His resurrection from the dead. And now, mission accomplished, Peter tells us there in verse 22 that Jesus Christ is in heaven as the victor at the right hand of the Father with angels and authorities and all power. In other words, everything subject to Him. Jesus Christ was not the victim and He is not the victim. He is the victor. And that's the verse that immediately precedes where we begin our passage for today where Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. May I say that while Peter directs our attention to the suffering of Christ, the real point here is not to get stuck on the suffering of Christ, but to look at what he just finished talking about in the words right before, that Jesus Christ didn't end with suffering. He ended victor over sin and death. And he ends, he right now is in heaven with all angels, all authority, all power subject to Him. Peter in this letter has already reminded us that we are God's people back in chapter 2. We are His chosen ones. And so, Jesus' victory is our victory. And while... We might be suffering now. The point is this. We are not victims. The focus is on the victory ahead rather than on the hurts now. And we are called to change our thinking. We are called to understand that as Jesus is a victor, not a victim, in the same way, we are victors and not victims. Life in this world can be hard and is hard at times. There will be pains. There will be hurts. There will be trials. There will be sufferings. There will be difficulties. There will at times be persecution. And at times in this, and at times today it seems that everybody wants to claim victim status. But Peter is telling us here, That we are not victims. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not to label ourselves as victims because God is in control. He is working His purpose in our life 
Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We were there a couple of months ago as we began this study and we noticed that we read there we are, we are chosen by God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been sanctified through the Holy Spirit. We've been born again into God's family, into a living hope. And we have an eternal destiny and an eternal inheritance that is awaiting us in, in heaven. It's guaranteed and secure. And so we do not then, as those where all of those are true about us as believers in Christ, we do not fret. We do not fear what is going on around us. We do not worry about what we are going through. Because with Jesus we are victors, not victims. We may be persecuted now. People may be doing horrific things to us. We may be going through difficult suffering, but we are not a victim. We are victors. As Joseph said back in Genesis chapter 50, right at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is there in Egypt, number two in the land of Egypt. His brothers are there, the brothers that had beaten him, thrown him into a pit. They were going to kill him. Then they decided to sell him into slavery. That would be more productive. And they sold him into slavery. He got sent down to Egypt. He was a slave. He ended up getting put in prison. And his brothers were worried now that daddy's dead, that Joseph is going to take revenge. You remember Joseph's words? He said, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you realize as believers in Christ that God is working for good in your life? No matter what bad things are going on, no matter how evil some people's intentions are toward you, God is intending and working it for good. You are not a victim, you are a victor. And Peter is reminding us here that we need a change of thinking as we live in a broken world. We, li- we need a change of thinking as we live in a world that is hostile towards Christ. And as we live here in, in the United States, we've enjoyed great freedom and security. But as we watch the culture grow more and more hostile towards Jesus Christ, the heat is maybe turned up, but we will not be victims. We are victors. He says, arm yourself with these thinking, with this thinking. Arm yourselves. The phrase is one that is a, is a military term. It was used for a soldier as he would put on his armor. A soldier would put on his armor with great care. He would make sure that everything is in the exact right spot and is very secure. He did that because his life depended upon it. And he is saying in a very similar way, we need to recognize that our, our ability to survive and thrive as followers of Jesus Christ in a hostile world depends on us arming ourselves with this way of thinking. This reality should change our focus. It should change our priorities in life. And so Peter then gives us three new mindsets that relate to this new way of thinking. Three other thoughts that flow out of this big change of thinking. He says, 
Continuing, go back to verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says, now that Christ has suffered, see the reality is we were victims. Truth is, we were victims. We were victims of sin. We were caught in its power. We were condemned in its penalty. We were condemned to hell. But Jesus suffered. Jesus died on the cross to put an end to sin's power, to pay for sin's penalty. And why did He do that? The answer is there. He says, so that for the rest of the time in the flesh, for the rest of the time that we are alive here in this mortal body, that we might live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We have here, as victors, we have a new purpose in life. Our purpose is to live for God's will. What is God's will for your life as a believer What is God's will for my life? Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, and some of you weren't, but we find it back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we discover that God's purpose for us is to live as God's people in this broken world. We find it in verse 9 where he says this. If you just look up, he says, but we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people For his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What is God's purpose for us as his people? Well, we are to be, it says here, a royal priesthood. We are to live as God's children, sons of the king, as priests. What is a priest's job? A priest is to go between, as shall I say, mere mortals... (laughs) Between men and God. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. That's what it says. And what is our job? To go between God and men. Now, Jesus is our great high priest. He paid the price of sin. Our job as as a priesthood is to proclaim the good news that God has sent Jesus to pay for sin. We are, as Paul says to the Corinthians, we are Christ's ambassadors. God making His appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. We are to be God's mouthpieces telling the world there is salvation available to anyone who will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We are to be a holy nation. That means we're to be holy people. We're to be, and we goes, he goes on here, we're to proclaim God's excellencies. Our purpose is to do God's will. And it's laid out right there in those those verses. If we're going to do that, there's another thing that we need to be doing. We find that in right there in the verse. He says, we're not any longer going to live for human passions. We are not going to live for sinful passions. They're delineated some of what those things look like. There's in the next verse. In verse... Three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
He says, now that you know what God has done, what He's called us from, what He's called us to, He says, the time is done for living the way that unbelievers live. It's irrational to follow sinful passions. It's irrational to live in drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. But such things are the heartbeat of the culture around us. All you have to do is turn on the radio and skim through radio stations and listen to music for a while. All you have to do is turn on the TV and watch channels on TV for a while. The lights go dim. All we have to do is listen to the news or read the news. All we have to do is get on the internet. All we have to do is hang out in social media for a while. And what you discover is these things he describes here are the heartbeat of our culture. And while everyone in our neighborhood and everyone in our culture doesn't imbibe, doesn't drink in all of these things to the full extent that they, that it's possible, the key is found in verse 2. It is that people are pursuing pleasure and fulfillment and joy, trying to find their purpose by, as it says in verse 2, pursuing human passions. In other words, they're busy doing whatever it is they desire whatever I want. And that's the main thing that people are going, what do I want to do? It's living for my, my purpose, my desires, rather than what does the Creator God desire. And Peter is saying here, we are to be decidedly different from that world, from that culture. Knowing that Jesus has saved us from sin and hell, Knowing that salvation, it costs the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. And knowing all the glories that God has called us to, which we have just quickly touched on even this morning. It simply makes no sense to go back and live like the unbelievers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have any of you ever been tempted and have gone back and lived like unbelievers? And if we were really showing hands, every hand would go up if we were honest. At times we all do. Which is why the Apostle Peter here writes here, don't go there. And why he has to encourage us, but do have the mindset to live as God's people in this broken world. We are to live for God's will, not for our will. It needs to be something that we, are, we, we keep in a, in a new mindset. We have a new purpose. And that's not it, to live like the world around us. We have a new purpose, to live according to what God wants. It's a higher purpose and a better purpose. And by the way, he says it's not going to be easy. When we choose to live that way, it won't be easy. With respect to those, he goes on in verse 4, with respect to this, they, that is the people in the culture around us, your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving co-workers, your unbelieving classmates, your unbelieving family, they will look at you and they will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. 
They will look at you and they will say, that's weird. They will malign you. That means they will mistreat you, slander you, make fun of you, even persecute you. But it's what God calls us to do. To live according to His will, to His purpose. Because we are no longer victims. We are victors. And why would we go back to that which victimized us, which was sin? And by the way, while the world, the reason the world does all these things is because they say, this is fun. This is what is fulfilling. This is living the life. The reality is, especially the older we get, we figured out that it's not living the life. <laughs> and hopefully we didn't have to find that out by our experience. What we see is what comes with living the life of what he says, all these things here, sensuality and passions and drunkenness and sexual immorality. What we find is, is these things bring pain and suffering into our life. We actually saw that in the lesson last week. Here was what Peter, what Peter was saying. What we realize is it's not a hard road to walk in God's way. It is the best road. But the culture says, you are weird. You are bizarre. I think you've lost your mind. Well, in light of that, Peter gives us another mindset. The second mindset that we need here. As those who are victors and not victims, look at verses 5 and 6. Actually, just verse 5 for the moment. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What we need to remember is judgment is coming. There is a day coming when those unbelievers will regret their choices. A day when they will stand before the living God and they will be called to account. And there will be no plea bargain deals made. There will be no second chances. It is a horrible and sobering reality that the vast number of people around us in our apartment complex, in our neighborhoods, in our classes, at our jobs, Many family members, they will stand before God and find themselves condemned. Because that's a reality, the gospel matters. The gravity and the finality of God's judgment is why the preaching and the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation that is available through Christ, that's why it matters. It is the difference between heaven and hell. And Peter writes here in verse 6, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, so that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And that's an odd verse when you read it. Is this saying that we are supposed to go out to the graveyards and start preaching to the tombstones. So it says this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Or is this verse saying that as some mistakenly take it that there is a second chance that somehow that after death there is a second opportunity for people to believe when the gospel is preached to them after they die. 
That is not what this text is saying. We know that because the Bible is clear. As Hebrews says, it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. There's not a second opportunity, another chance. Well, what is this text saying? Well, it's simply saying this. It's speaking about those who are dead now, but who heard the gospel while they were alive, and they believed the gospel, and they put their faith in Christ, and now they are dead, but they are alive. They're dead physically. The body died, but they are alive spiritually. They are alive in the presence of God right at this minute. You see, it's very likely that some of the folks who were giving believers a hard time, they were maligning believers, that uh, they had been maligning some of these folks, and some of these folks in the last months, years, have died. Maybe some of them were killed for their faith. And these unbelievers who are now maligning and giving believers, the living believers, a hard time, they're saying, look, see what good your faith has done. Those folks are dead. And they missed out on all the fun that we're having living as we're living. And again, as we've said, we understand that, number one, it's not fun. Well, it's fun for a little while. It's fun for as long as the cheese is fun for the mouse on the mousetrap. It's fun for as long as the worm is fun for the, for the fish on the fish hook. It's fun for an instant. But you see, what they miss is that these folks aren't dead. They are very much alive. As the Bible says that that when we leave this life as believers in Jesus Christ, when we die, we are in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Instantly, we are passed out of this life, but into the presence of Christ. And we are awaiting the day, as Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when we will, there is a resurrection of the bodies. We are given a new body, one that lasts forever. It is body 2.0. Everything that you didn't like about this one is fixed and improved upon and it lasts forever. This is saying that these believers, while they are physically dead and while they were physically unjustly judged and maligned by unbelievers, they are alive now and they haven't missed a thing. Judgment is coming, and the gospel matters. It matters not only to those who heard it before and are now died and now are in the presence of God. It certainly mattered to them, but it matters to those around us who don't know Christ. And we've been left here as God's ambassadors. And how we need to be busy preaching the good news of the gospel to a lost world. It is our mission here. Well, one more change of thinking here, one more thought that comes out of this big change of thinking, that we are victors, not victims. We find it in verse 7. The end of all things is near. We have a new purpose, and that is God to live for God's will. Judgment is coming, but the end is near. 
When he says here that the end of all things is at hand, literally that, that phrase, is at hand, means it's approaching. One thing it tells us is that the, the return of Jesus Christ is what he's speaking of here. The return of Jesus Christ is approaching. It's at hand. It is closer today than it was yesterday. It's closer today than it was two weeks ago. It's closer today than it was 2,000 years ago. It may be today, it may, Jesus Christ may not come back for another 500 years, but His return is at hand because it's getting nearer every day. And the point here is it is certain. It is certainly coming. It's definitely coming. But there's also here the sense of the fact that it's imminent. It can happen at any time. Jesus Christ may return before I finish this message. And so you say, I knew he could preach a long time. <laughs> His return might still be centuries away. But the fact is, it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. You know, the next to the last verse in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the next to the last verse, Jesus says, Surely I am coming quickly. The word quickly, he's talking about coming suddenly. Quickly or soon. But it just means it could be right now. Are you ready is the point. The reality is, is even if Jesus Christ doesn't come in our lifetime, the end is near because your lifetime isn't nearly as long as you think it is. Just this past week, one of our beloved sisters here from the chapel passed away, Evelyn Newhouse. She was 100 years old, would have turned 101 in February. You know, not many people live to be as old as our dear sister Evelyn. Matter of fact, very few do. Most of the scripture says make it to 70 or by strength to 80 years, as Psalm 90 says. But you know what? It goes by quick. I've never forgotten the words of my mom at age 94. I've said this before to some of you. Age 94. She, her mind was fuzzy uh, in those, most of those later years. But one day we were out to eat, she and my dad and I, and my mom said, I think I'm going to die today. I, I'm going to die today, aren't I? I always knew this day would come. I just didn't think it would be so soon. You see, that's the way it is. That's what Moses goes on to say in, in Psalm 1, in Psalm 90. He, Moses, by the way, lived 120 years and he says, Our days are like the grass that springs up in the morning and by evening it withers and dies. That's how long life is. And those of us who have put a few years under our belt, those of us who have got the gray hair on top, what we realize is it's gone by like this. If I live as long as my parents, my life is, two is two-thirds over. If I live as long as the average lifespan, I'm three-fourths done. If I die early because I have not taken good care of myself and I stay up way too, light, too late and I may not make it through the end of the message today. 
The reality is none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. The end is near. Whether you have six minutes left or 60 years left, the end is near. And the question is, what are we going to do with it? What if you learn this afternoon, you have 30 days left to live? Or 30 days before Jesus comes? Either one. What are you going to do? That's where we pull out the bucket list. You know, people start bucket lists. What do I want to do in my life? Well, I want to go see the Grand Canyon. Well, I want to go skydiving. Well, I want to, and people make up their things, things I want to do. Make sure I do in, in the rest, with the rest of my life. And you know what? Those things may not be bad. It's a good thing to see the Grand Canyon. But folks, those things in terms of eternity don't matter. If we're really going to create a bucket list, it's recognizing I have a limited time between now and eternity. The end is near. What am I going to do with it? And that's really where Peter brings us right here. We are victors, not victims. We have a new purpose in life. That's God's will. Judgment is coming. The end is near. So what should we be doing? Whether you have six minutes or 60 years. Isn't it nice he gives us a list? Three things as we wrap it up. First, Let's go back to verse 7. The end of all things is near. It is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled and sober-minded, but there's a purpose here for that. And what is it? it? So you can pray. So you can pray effectively. Number one thing in his bucket list of what we need to do with the little bit of time that you have left in your life He says, pray. Most of us, if we're creating a bucket list, that doesn't even make the list. And Peter says, it's number one. You know where Peter learned that? Jesus. Jesus and later the apostles made a big deal of prayer. They made a priority of prayer. Jesus prayed regularly. He prayed intensely. Sometimes He prayed all night long. What was the last thing Jesus did before going to the cross other than being arrested and beaten and tried? The last thing that He chose to do was pray. May I say, brothers and sisters, that has something to say about the priority we should put on prayer And I know this is convicting, isn't it? Because most of us, myself included, do not pray enough. We are surrounded by voices and gadgets that constantly call for our attention. They constantly distract us. And they crowd out time for communing with our Father. It's no wonder that we are stressed and distressed and spiritually weak because we spend little time in prayer. He goes on, number two on his bucket list of what we should do with the little time that we have left in this life. He says, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I ran across, across this quote this week. I thought it was cool. If we live without prayer, we will die without hope. I think that's the reason a lot of Christians are hopeless. They're living distressed and stressed. If we live without prayer, we die without hope. We're to be people of prayer. Okay, now I get to the next point. Number two on his list is, what did he say? He said we are to love. Love everyone, especially the family of God, the believers in Jesus Christ. Again, I go back to the last night before the cross when Jesus was there in the upper room with His disciples. John chapter 13. Jesus is speaking with them. And there He tells them in John chapter 13, He says, I give to you a new commandment. What was the new commandment? That you love one another. Love one another. This is it's not new, but it's new. It's new because he's saying it needs to be new. It needs to be something we're doing every day. It's a focus. It's a priority. Love is a priority of the Christian life. It is, Jesus goes on to say, it, there in John chapter 13, He says, this is the mark how you will know His, his followers. By this all men will, will know that you are My disciples, in that you love one another. We are connected to each other in Christ. We need one another in this hostile world. And so we need to learn love, he says here. He says, love one another earnestly. Some of you weren't around back in chapter 1. He uses that same phrase, love earnestly. And that word earnestly is the same. What the word earnestly means is it means it's an athletic term. It means stretched out. It's the, the baseball player who's who's running into home. He's trying to beat the pitch and he dives out, stretched out as far as he can go, trying to get his fingertips touching the bag before the ball gets there. That's what he's saying. It's going to every extent possible. He says that's the way we need to love one another. Where we go all out, we expend great effort to love one another. Sometimes, frankly, it's not easy, is it? Sometimes it's costly. But time is short. So he says, love one another earnestly. By the way, it means there's no time for bickering and fighting, which I hate to say it, the Christians have a reputation for doing. Bickering and fighting amongst one another, it ought not to be so. He says here, love covers a multitude of sins. He quotes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. When we love others, we are not thin-skinned. When we love others, we are thick-skinned, meaning that we're not easily offended. We, we let those little offenses roll off. We put aside most offenses and petty disagreements. And when it's something we can't put aside, we work to resolve it. That's love. He says here we're hospitable. Love is hospitable. There weren't Motel 6s or Holiday Inns back there in Asia Minor at this time. There weren't Cracker Barrels or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A's. So lodging and food were critical needs for travelers, for strangers, for other refugees. Those are still today good ways to invest in people. But the point here is investing in people. Going out of your way, stretching yourself to care for those with needs. 
Stretch yourself going the extra mile to get to know and to encourage newcomers and strangers to give help, to welcome people into your world if they're believers in Christ or if they are unbelievers so that you can share Christ with them. He goes on to give us the third thing on this bucket list and we'll wrap it up. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and to Him be glory, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The third thing on his bucket list, pray, love, and serve. Use whatever God has given you, whatever gifts God has given to you. Don't just be thankful for them. Invest them. Use them. We are stewards, he says here, as good stewards. A steward is someone that somebody places valuables in their trust. God has given you valuables. He's given you money. He's given you strength. He's given you breath. He's given you time. He's given you energy. He's given you intelligence. He's given you gifts of abilities. Use them. Use them to serve God. Use them to bring God glory and to spread His gospel. We are victors, not victims. Change the way you think and the way you view this world. You are not a victim. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a victor. And out of that, understand you have a new purpose to live for God. Not to chase the other stuff. Judgment is coming. And the end is near. Let's pray. Father, this is calling us to radically different approaches to life. I pray that it will make a difference in us. Not changes on the external, but changes internally. Things that change our thinking. And then that works its way out into the way we live. It'll change our priorities. It'll change the things that we don't do and it'll change the things that we do. It'll change the way we treat others. It'll change the way that we love and care about others. And if we live that way, our lives will make a big impact for eternity. It'll bring you glory. And so to that end, Father, we ask that you would help us to put this into practice. And we ask it in Jesus' name.